Good morning. Welcome to South Park Church. I'm Pastor Kyle Thompson. Thank you all for being here today, whether you're in person in our traditional sanctuary or joining us from upstairs in our modern sanctuary or online through a stream or through our podcast. Uh, we're one church with many different ways of worshiping God, but uh, again, one church, one God, and one message. Uh, actually, today is the one-year anniversary of us doing simultaneous services, where we're having two services in the building in our traditional space and upstairs in our modern space, so that we can come together afterwards and fellowship with coffee and donuts and fruit, and our children can all be in one area learning together. And so I think it's been a really good thing for our congregation. And let's just give God some thanks for that today, whether you're down here or upstairs. We've gotten a lot of good feedback about that, and we're going to continue doing that. Uh, I'd like to also just lift up um, Turkey and Syria uh, and that terrible earthquake that's happened there. Almost 30,000 people have died already and probably many more than that. Uh, I know that the United Methodist Church uh, Committee on Relief is going to be active and going over there and taking aid to them. And there'll be opportunities for us as a United Methodist congregation to financially support that. And so as we hear more about that, we will share that with you. Uh, but in the meantime, if you'll just continue to keep folks uh, in your prayers, that is a terrible tragedy. Uh, and so we certainly want to do what we can to help. Uh, today, we're going to continue in our series, The Stories of Jesus, in which we've been looking at stories in the Bible about Jesus and what we can learn about him. And also looking at what are our stories about Jesus? Where does Jesus come into our life and how has Jesus transformed us? And I just want to thank you all for sharing some of your personal stories with me. If you feel led to share a Jesus story with me, I would love to receive that. There's some papers outside of each sanctuary that you can fill out. And there's a basket in the crossroads space where we're going to have coffee and donuts. Or you can put it in one of the offering boxes at the back of our sanctuaries. Uh, it's just, uh, I'd love to hear your stories. Uh, I'd love to share those with people with your permission who might be going through similar things in their faith journey. Uh, but it's, it's a blessed thing for us to try to find where Jesus fits into our lives. And so we're going to continue doing that today. They say that people who live in glass houses should not do what? Throw stones. People who live in glass houses should not throw stones. Basically, it means that uh, we shouldn't criticize other people for things that we're doing ourselves, which we can easily do, right? And so uh, I looked this up, and it originates, it's given credit to actually Geoffrey Chaucer, uh, the great writer in the year 1385. In his work, Troilus and Cressida, he was the first one to kind of coin this phrase, and it's been reused in different ways. Benjamin Franklin re-kind of wrote it here in America. Uh, and today, I want to go back even further uh, into the Bible that has a very similar meaning. It wasn't phrased in the same way. Uh, but a story of Jesus that kind of says something very similar to that. And what's interesting is you probably all probably have heard this story. Um, it might sound familiar to you, and if not, that's okay. Uh, but what's interesting is that for a long time in part of the church history, this passage of Scripture either wasn't in the Bible or it wasn't talked about. So in like the Eastern Christian church, going back to the like first century when it, the church started and all that kind of stuff, uh, the Bible got put together somewhere around the year 400. And for, uh, in the Eastern Church, Eastern Christian Church, for almost a thousand years, this story wasn't talked about by the leading theologians. wasn't even in some of the Bibles until somewhere around the year 800, and it was then just a footnote. 
So why is it that for almost a thousand years, this story was ignored in the Eastern Church? Now, in the Western Church, it did show up around the year 350 A.D., right before the Bible was put together. And we can trace it back kind of even like orally in some manuscripts all the way back to around 60 A.D. And so in the Western Church, it was kind of talked about a little bit more. But in the Eastern Church, again, almost a thousand years went by where the church didn't even recognize or talk about this story. Why do you think that might be? We'll, we'll talk about that today. So we're going to be in the Gospel of John. The Gospel means the good news of Jesus. And John is one of the disciples of Jesus who's writing about his life and ministry. And Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. It's near the time where he's going to be executed, killed on the cross. And he's doing a lot of teaching. And during the day, he teaches uh, in the religious area. There was a big temple that was like the, like the national church, if you will. Uh, and so Jesus is teaching there, and people are flocking to hear him teach. And at the same time, there's some religious leaders in Jesus' day that felt threatened by him, and they're trying to get him into trouble with the Roman rulers. We've talked about this in this series some before. And so some of that same thing's going on. So let's look at this story that Jesus teaches us. And just in the back of your mind, why is it that this story was ignored for almost a thousand years in a big chunk of the church's history? So let's jump in. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. Well, Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So during the day, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's in the National Cathedral kind of place, this big temple. And then at night, he goes out on the eastern side of Jerusalem. There's a hill, the Mount of Olives. And on that area is the town of Bethany, where some of Jesus' friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, two sisters and her brother live. And so maybe he's hanging out there at night. He's coming back during the day. And again, people are flocking to hear him teach. And at the same time, some of the religious leaders are trying to get him into trouble, trying to trap him. So let's see what happens. So the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, right? Sex outside of marriage. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So this woman is having sexual relationships outside of her marriage, which is a big problem back in the day. Uh, and evidently, she's been caught doing this. And there are witnesses who have evidence, and they've brought her to Jesus in front of all these people to make a big scene. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Right? So these folks come up, they bring this woman, they say she was in adultery, we caught her, and uh, the, the, the penalty for this is death. We're supposed to all throw stones at her and to kill her. Right? Jesus, what are you going to do about this? Now, we need to think through a little bit of what's going on here, right? So they, in biblical times, right, to, to catch someone and to bring a case against them, to have evidence, you needed at least two credible witnesses, right? Two credible witnesses. So likely in this case, two men. So two men have walked into someone's home where this woman is having an adulterous relationship with a man and been caught in the act, Right? What are the odds that two guys randomly walk into a house and this is happening? Right? That would be pretty astronomical. Okay, So probably this is some kind of entrapment. Right? This is some kind of a setup, maybe some kind of a sting situation where they've come in to do this. Okay? Uh, and so then we, we think about this. So they come in, and I think there's some challenges to, to what's going on. One of them would be that in the, in the Jewish law, that 
when you were seeing someone getting ready to commit a sin, it was your duty to step in and intervene and to stop that, right? So if these two men walked in on these people having this adulterous relationship, right, they should have said, hey, you guys need to stop this, but evidently that's not their interest, right? They, it seems like they need a scapegoat. They want to bring someone to Jesus to try to trap him. So this situation is a little iffy uh, at best, okay? Uh, and so this is going on. And the question is, right, is the woman, is she engaged? Is she already married? Like, what's the situation? In the Jewish law, it said that men and women both, if they're committing adultery and caught in the act, should be killed, right? And it said uh, that a woman who was engaged would be stoned, right, throw rocks at her. If a woman was married, it said she should be put to death, but it didn't say necessarily how to do that. Some later Jewish writings in the Mishnah said that if it was a married woman, that she should be strangled. Uh, And so in this case... Probably the woman was engaged to be married. Uh, It had a little more legal meaning than it does in our society. Uh, She's been caught by these two men uh, who found this. But my question is, where's the man she was with, right? Conveniently, he's not here, and he's not being put on trial in front of everybody. Uh, And it takes two to tango, if you know what I'm talking about, right? So where is he, right? And why isn't he there? And why is she the only one who's been paraded in front of everybody in front of Jesus? And if these guys are such good religious people and good witnesses, right? First of all, they didn't try to intervene and stop this. Why didn't they just quietly take this to the authorities instead of embarrassing this woman in front of everybody and and everything? Because this wasn't about her. It was about Jesus. They wanted to get him into trouble. They wanted to say... Jesus, you need to have this woman stoned. They knew that he didn't want to probably do that. And if he refused that, he'd look bad in front of everyone. So this is kind of like a lynch mob mentality, right? They're trying to do this street justice, and they don't care about the woman. They don't care about what she's done. Their whole goal is to trap Jesus. So let's see what happens. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, some people might think, well, Jesus is just trying to stall. He's trying to figure out what he's going to say. And maybe that would sort of frustrate some of these people that were trying to get the woman killed. And I, I don't know if that's the case, but I do wonder, what do you think Jesus wrote in the dust? What do you think Jesus is writing in the dirt? Is he, is he writing something? Is he drawing pictures? Right? I have no idea. And we can't prove what Jesus wrote, but there are some traditional ideas that I'm going to run by and and see what you think, right? This is one that people think that Jesus might have been writing, that he might have been writing from Jeremiah 17, which is our Old Testament. It would have been Jesus' Bible, right? Lord, you're the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water, right? Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, So maybe Jesus is writing uh, names in the dust of people who've turned away from him. Maybe the man who's not there, maybe this woman. Who knows? This is a possibility that some people traditionally have thought Jesus might have written. Here's another option that people have thought about. Exodus 23, 1. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. So maybe Jesus is writing this in the ground right, to go against those who have tried to bring this woman and get her into trouble. Right? Don't be a bad witness. This seems like an entrapment. Maybe this is a, a challenging thing. So some people think that this might be the case. I've also heard it said that what Jesus was writing in the, in the dirt was the name of the man that she was with who happens not to be present. Right? Bottom line, we have no idea what was written in the dust. Right? We have no idea 
fascinates me to think about that. Jesus is riding in the dust, and the people are kind of getting frustrated with him. So we continue. When they kept on questioning him, right, stop riding in the dirt. We want you to stand up and answer this question. He straightened up and said to him, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. That's the zinger, right? This is probably, if you've heard this story, this is probably what you remember, right? That's the key verse in all of this, all of this uh, study today, right? Those of you, whoever's without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. Right? If, if you, anyone's perfect, anyone's not messed up, then by all means, stand up and start throwing the stones at her, right? If you live in glass houses, don't throw, right, stones, right? That's not what Jesus said, but it's the same sentiment, all right? You guys want to kill her? You want mob justice? You want a lynch mob here? Then whoever's perfect, be the first one to th throw the stone at her. Jesus is a genius, isn't he? He's, he just disarms his crowd. See what happens now. Again, he stooped back down to write on the ground. He's sending them some kind of really clear message. I wish we had a copy of it. But at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. I can imagine like there's a mob there. There's people like, yeah, she deserves it. You know, she was wrong. Get the stones out. Right? As soon as Jesus says, whoever right, has not done anything sinful, throw the first stone. They probably drop the stones. They probably get silent. They probably get embarrassed. They might feel a little bit of ashamed, and they just kind of like you know do the walk of shame away from Jesus, and they all are gone. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, "Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you?" Right when he calls her woman, this is not an insult. It's it's a term of respect. Jesus often calls his mother Mary woman. When you read the scriptures, he woman. Uh, and so this is, this is not an insult to her, right? He's being very gracious to her, right? No one, sir, she said, right? So she's responding with uh, respect, calling him sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus does the unthinkable, right? He disarms this mob that's ready to kill this woman, uh, and deservedly so in the day and time of what was going on. Right? She's been caught red-handed. Her partner's not there with her. He's somehow let off scot-free. But Jesus says, all right, who's going to throw the first stone? Those of you who are without sin, do it. And they walk away. And then he says to her, where are they? Is there no one left to condemn you? No. Then I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Right? So Jesus is not saying that she was innocent. Right? She, she did something that was wrong. She deserved to die in the day, at the time, right, legally, all that kind of stuff. He chose to forgive her. He chose to give her a fresh start. And he chose to show her grace. Right, so there's a lot going on here. This is powerful stuff as we think about, well, what does this look like in, in our lives as followers of Jesus? In our lives, people who maybe are thinking about following Jesus, what does this look like? And why, again, was this left out of the scriptures? Why was it left out of church tradition in the Eastern church for almost a thousand years? Why would they skip over this passage of scripture? St. Augustine said that he thinks that there were a lot of husbands who were nervous their wives would cheat on them and use this as a way to get out of punishment, right? That would be really sad if that's true. I hope that's not the case. Um, but the, the, the leading thing that I've read that I think might be the reason this was left out for so long is that this woman wasn't punished. There was no penance. There was no restitution, right? 
how can we as a church enforce morality if there's no punishment? How as we as a society enforce laws if there's no punishment, right? And so perhaps, and again, we don't know why it was left out, right? perhaps that might be one of the main reasons, right? No punishment, right? no penance, no restitution. How can we enforce morality as people of faith if there's no consequences for that? So something to think about. There's a lot to think about in this, right? First of all, there was this woman who did something wrong, and there are usually consequences for what we do wrong, right? She did something wrong. She had to face consequences. Um, but then Jesus flips it back on the rest of the crowd and says, all of you have done something wrong, right? So all of us in this room, all of us watching, we all make mistakes. We all make bad decisions. We all sin. We miss the mark. We do something wrong that brings guilt into our lives, that brings shame into our lives, right? So it's not just this woman that sins, but all of us sin. Right? And we all deserve consequences just like the woman deserves consequences, whether our sin is adultery or our sin is something else. Right? So there we are sinners, right? And then there's judgment, right? In the woman's case, she was supposed to be executed. She's supposed to be stoned to death, right? That's painful, right? That's a, that's a bad way to die, right? She did something wrong. She got caught. She deserved to be executed. Jesus said, I'm going to give you a pass on that, right? So in our lives, when we do something wrong, should we expect consequences? Now, I don't think Jesus is throwing out all consequences right, for doing wrong. I think that right, there are different types of consequences. I think there's earthly consequences, like when we do something wrong, there are consequences. If I cheat on a test and I get caught, I'm going to get an F on that test. Right? If I cheat on my spouse, then, uh, then she's probably going to divorce me. Right? I'm going to lose a relationship. If I'm mean to my friend, they might not be my friend anymore. If I break a law, I'm going to have to pay a fine. I might have to go to jail. Right? So there's earthly consequences that we deal with. And then there's spiritual consequences. Right? We commit a sin. We do something wrong. We experience guilt inside of us. We experience shame. Uh, the Bible says we also will experience death one day, and we'll experience hell, right? eternal brokenness. These are spiritual or heavenly consequences. And so... When Jesus came to the earth and died on a cross and came back to life, he did that to help us with our consequences, our, like our, our, our spiritual consequences. Right? When we do something wrong now, we're going to suffer with guilt and shame for a little bit, but Jesus is willing to take that guilt and shame from us. Jesus is also willing to allow us to have life to the full now and life forever in the kingdom of heaven. Right? So we experience spiritual consequences, but Jesus helps us get through that. And we still have to deal with earthly consequences. I can flunk out of school. My wife could leave me. Right? I could go to jail if I drink and drive. Right? Those consequences are still going to be enforced. But Jesus helps us navigate those things. Right? He helps us navigate those things. Right? So consequences, kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, but in this case, there was a woman who deserved death. And Jesus said, I'm not going to let you be executed. Right. I wonder what that looks like in our society. Back in 1983, uh, a woman named Carla Faye Tucker and her boyfriend uh, lived in Houston, Texas, and they were on drugs. And they were very high one day, and they went into a home in Houston, Texas, uh, and they were going to try to rob it, uh, you know, get some money for other drugs. Uh, and the family that lived there, a married husband and wife, lived there in that home in Houston, uh, were home. And they were surprised by Carla Faye and her boyfriend who were high on drugs. 
Uh, and so Carla Faye and her boyfriend uh, killed the family. Uh, they grabbed a hammer and they grabbed a pickaxe and they killed the family. And over 20 stab wounds in these, in these people. So they were caught, they were arrested, they were convicted, and they were both sentenced to death, to die, uh, execution. Uh, and that takes a long time to play out in the court system and jail time. And so uh, the boyfriend ended up dying in jail in 1993. Ten years later, he ended up dying in jail. Um, Carla Faye Tucker, when she was in her third month of serving her sentence uh, of being in jail before she was going to be executed, uh, she found Jesus, or Jesus found her. Right? There was a Christian group that was visiting the prison. They were doing like a puppet ministry. Uh, she stole one of the Bibles because she didn't know they were free. Uh, and she took the Bible into her cell, and she began to read it, uh, and she gave her life to Christ. And she said for the first time in her life, she knew what remorse was, and she felt horrible for what she and her boyfriend had done. There's no way they could bring that family back, that husband and wife that they so brutally murdered, but she was sorry, and she apologized. And so for 15 years in prison, she ministered to other prisoners. Uh, she married the prison chaplain, right? And, and so... In the meantime, people were just saying, you know, this is fake. It, she's just doing this to try to get out of being executed, right? This is not a true conversion. Larry King came in and interviewed her as the, as the time for her death sentence was getting ready to come up. And uh, she appealed the death sentence uh, in 1998. You know, people were wondering, right, is this going to be the first woman to be executed in the state of Texas since the Civil War? And they did, in fact, execute her. And on her deathbed, she was still talking about love and forgiveness and how she was sorry. Um, but they executed her. So today, two women, one in the Bible, committed adultery. She didn't kill anybody, but she committed adultery, and that was punishable by death. This woman in Texas committed murder. She was sentenced to execution. She found God, and the state still carried out that sentence. Right. Two women sentenced to death. One was killed one was spared. Um, I think a question maybe is, should society, when it comes to death, be more like Jesus? I don't have that answer. But maybe it's something that we need to think about in the scripture of what it means uh, in, in our society to, to think about subjects like this. All right. So, someone committed sin. Uh, there are earthly consequences. There are spiritual consequences. Jesus helps us with consequences, but we still face them. What about the accusers, right? The accusers of this woman, it seems like they set her up. We can't prove that, but it does seem like she was set up. Uh, and then these people that come to Jesus wanting her death to be stoned in front of everybody, they're religious men, godly, pious men, and they're bloodthirsty, right? And, and legally, they were doing the right thing. But spiritually, was that the right thing to do, to demonize this woman and to have this happen, right? And, and so I guess today, for those of us who follow Jesus, right, is it our role to be the religious police when other people do something wrong? Is it our role as followers of Jesus to be the religious police, right? Because the church has a reputation of saying, oh, this is going on in the culture. It's sinful. It's wrong. You're going to hell. You need to stop doing that. Is that what we're supposed to be doing as followers of Jesus? Right? Now, I don't think that we should stop calling out bad evil for what it is, right? If my children do something wrong, I'm going to say to them, this is not right, uh, and these are the consequences, right? If, if, 
if you as members of the congregation were doing something that I thought was against God's will and just the wrong thing to do, I would pray about it and probably have a conversation with you. Not in front of the whole church, <laughs> not in front of a whole group of people saying that we're going to throw rocks at you, right? But because I love you, and conversely, if I was doing something that you thought was wrong, I would hope that you would sit down and have a conversation with me. Right? I, think, I don't think that we should ignore evil. I don't think that we should ignore wrongdoing. I don't think that, that, that there are not consequences for our actions. But as followers of Jesus, there's a way to do it, and there's a way not to do it. And we have such a bad history uh, in our nation here in America of being so judgmental and I think part of what's going on here is what Jesus was saying is like sometimes it's easier for us to focus on what other people are doing wrong so that we don't have to focus on what we're doing wrong right? it's easier to point the finger and say oh look how bad they are how evil they are how wicked they are rather than looking in the mirror and saying you know what I don't have my ship together I don't have things going well in my life. And so a lot of times we who follow Jesus are quick to demonize others because it takes attention off of ourselves. So again, as Jesus said, those who are without sin cast the first stone. Right? Again, we don't let evil or bad things go unchecked, but I don't think we're the religious police that are supposed to be judge, jury, and executioner even in our culture. So things for us to think about. And then, of course, there's the whole sexual element in this story that might make us squirm a little bit as we, we think about that in church. But, you know, these people were trying to trap Jesus. Uh, and just like the 21st century, in the 1st century, if you want to get people's attention, talk about sex, right? You know, earlier we'd seen the religious leaders trying to trap Jesus by talking about taxes. Like, is it legal to pay taxes to Caesar, right? That's probably not on everybody's hot button issue, it is for some, right? But if you really want to get the crowd interested, hey, let's talk about sex, Jesus. And, and everybody's just, okay, I'm tuned into that, right? Now, you can give Caesar a coin or not, but if someone's talking about sex, I'm going to pay attention to that, right? And, and again, Christian church, we have a really rich history, and not in the right way, right, of demonizing people who commit sexual sins. Uh, and it's so much easier to talk about sexual sins than it is to focus on our own sins, right? We talk about adulteries, we talk about people who are divorced and having sex outside of marriage, all that kind of stuff, all kinds of, you name it, right? Sexual sin gets more attention than any other sin. Right? And sexual sin is not God's will, right? God wants all sex to take place in the bond of marriage. It's a gift from God. Anything outside of that, we're missing the mark and it does damage to ourselves, it does damage to other people, right? It's serious stuff. But a lot of times in America, like, we make that the number one sin above all other sins. And we look and say, hey, look how bad they are at doing these things. And it, it, it covers up our greed or our pride or our gossip or whatever it is that, that we're dealing with. Or we're focusing on other people's sexual sins so nobody will look at our sexual sin. Or that we won't look at our own sexual sin. Right? So there's a lot of stuff that really hits home in the scripture, I think, with, with a lot of us, and Jesus is getting our attention. And then again, the fact that this woman's dragged before this group, right, of this crowd to be killed. Where's the man? It takes two to tango. Why didn't they drag the man in front of Jesus? He would have deserved to be killed too. Why isn't he there? Because again, just like in the 21st century, in the 1st century, there's a double standard when it comes to sex. In our culture, a man has sex outside of marriage. It's like, ah, boys will be boys. He's just sowing his wild oats. 
right? Just, it's okay. He's just being a guy. If it's a woman, look at that slut. She's such a whore. Damaged goods. You can't marry her. It's not fair. It's wrong. In the first century and in the 21st century, where is the man when this woman is drugged before Jesus? So what's the point today? What's the big idea? What's the take? Because there's a lot. We talked about a lot. Thank you guys for being patient. And I know this can make you feel squirmy in your seats, but this is what I think it is. You're not too far from God and neither is your neighbor. You're not too far from God if you've committed sexual sin in your life and neither is your neighbor if they've committed sexual sin. You're not too far from God if you committed a non-sexual sin in your life. And neither is your neighbor. You're not too far from God. You are not too far from God. You are not too far from God, no matter what you've done in your life. And neither is your neighbor. Neither is your neighbor who doesn't deserve to be demonized so that we don't have to focus on the sins that we commit in our lives. So a few action steps that I invite you to think about in reaction to this passage of Scripture. One, look in the mirror first, right? Before we start throwing stones at other people, What's going on in our life? Where have we missed the mark? Where are we doing wrong in our relationship with God? Where are we doing wrong in our relationship with others? Before we start pointing the fingers at other people, what are we doing wrong in our own lives? And secondly, repent and be forgiven. Repent means to turn away from. Say, you know what, Jesus? I've done these wrong things. I'm sorry. I feel guilty about that. I feel ashamed about that. I want to leave that life, those things behind me. I want to turn away from that. I want to turn to you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for coming back to life. Thank you for telling me that you're going to take my guilt and shame and you're going to throw it away. And you're going to give me instead joy and a sense of peace inside of me. That you're going to give me life to the full and life forever, even though I don't deserve it. Right? Yes, God, I want to leave that stuff behind. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Come in and please forgive me. Right? And so then the third step would be, right, start new with Jesus. Jesus said to this woman, right, go and sin no more, right? You you messed up, you're forgiven, have a fresh start. Jesus is saying the same thing to you. No matter what your sin is, whether it's sexual or non-sexual, whatever it is, Jesus is saying to all of us, you can have a fresh start with me, even if you don't deserve it. That's why I came. That's why I died. That's why I came back to life, because I love you, and I want you to be with me, right? Start fresh with Jesus. And then finally today, don't throw stones at other people. It's okay to recognize sin. It's okay to recognize evil in the world. But don't demonize people. Don't elevate yourself over other people. Don't scapegoat people at the cost of their their situation and the cost of yours. Don't throw stones at other people. Just like Jesus said, those of you who have not done anything wrong, you can be the first one to throw a stone. Don't throw stones. Don't demonize other people. Don't throw stones. Don't demonize other people, right? So as we think about the metaphor of living in a glass house, I'm wondering how many of us today feel like the life that we've built, the life around us, lies shattered all around us. That there are people in our lives who've been throwing stones at us, stones at us, saying, you're bad at this, you're bad at this, you're wrong, you're terrible, you're evil, you're no good. Right? That there are people in your life who've thrown stones and stones and stones and just crashed your house and you're just sitting in the shards and you're cutting your bleeding and you just think there's nowhere to go. 
Or maybe some of us have been sitting in our home that we've been trying to build, this life that we've been trying to build, and we feel like we're self-sabotagers, like that we've been throwing stones outwards at the world and at other people, and we're hurting, and and we've brought our whole life crashing down around us, and uh, it's in shards, and it's shattered, and, and it's our fault. Or maybe it's a combination. Do you feel like you're sitting among a bunch of broken shards in your life? Then know that Jesus is the master carpenter. He was a carpenter, right? He's the master carpenter. And that he can come back and help you pick up the broken pieces. He can come and help you build a brand new life. He can help you build a brand new home, right, in your life, in your heart, your soul, right, so that, that this home can can let in the light and let the darkness go. This home, you can breathe in the, the fresh air. You can breathe in the sunshine, right? You can have a fresh start. The master carpenter can take all of our brokenness and build it into something beautiful because you're not too far from God and neither is your neighbor. Do not cast stones, but repent and be forgiven in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.